So it really came down to probably the biggest capital expenditure that the company was ever going to take on. And we were right on the doorstep of trying to buy a press from Andre Gottford. <laughs> and we were going to buy a Gottford machine. And Wayne would hear me out and we'd have pretty in-depth meetings about what we were going to do with this machine. I probably carried a quote around for two years. Mm. And we had meetings around how this was going to work and what it would cost, what the bank model was, how we would pay for it. And ultimately, I think that's what was the final straw that Wayne said, you guys just need to buy the business. We're not going to do that. And I know it's probably the right thing to do. And you need to buy the company. Fine. How do we do that? Well, we bought the company. I think it was on a Friday in October of 2016. And we bought the Gottford Press on Monday. That was the whole catalyst that got this whole thing to go down. So yes. there was no backing out at this point, And I didn't want to get too smart to get scared. Yeah. So I was young, dumb, and fearless. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. We're excited about our guest today, Chad Wagner, president of Peachtree Packaging in Lawrenceville, Georgia. An exciting story. Chad's got a very interesting background and, uh, and he's also a good golfer. So, <laughs> Some days. Yeah, we're excited to have him. I think from my point of view, we went to the Southeast Regional meeting back in May. Obviously, you opened up your plant to a tour that time. And I think this is the first guest that we've had, Gene, that we've had numerous people come to us and say, you have to reach out to Chad. The story we're looking forward to hearing. But from our point of view, five, six, seven people have come to us and said, this is going to be really a perfect guest for your podcast. So we're really looking forward to digging into your story and hearing what you're all about and hearing what Peachtree is all about. And now a word from our sponsors. You know, when you think about focusing on something that's core to your business and just being really, really good at one thing, Oxbox comes to mind. Their business strategy is strength you can depend on, focusing on jumbo and large format boxes, heavy-duty boxes. Check them out at www.oxbox.com. Now, back to the show. So before we go back to the beginning, maybe a little bit of an overview of what Peachtree is all about. I like to consider us a solutions-based, service-based, corrugated packaging manufacturer. So <clears throat> we don't have a paper mill, we don't have a corrugator, but we do have a lot of great ideas and a lot of good solutions that we think we can offer the marketplace. And if we serve those solutions up properly, then that's our competitive niche. So we hang our hat on our ability to print and our ability to run the things that maybe the, the other big integrateds don't fancy so much. So we've come a long way in a short amount of time with our print capability. We really upgraded our assets now six years ago, and we've spent a lot of time learning and putting systems behind those machines and people to those machines with the right education to be able to put out what I like to think is a, an award-winning product. We have several awards on the wall to prove that, so I'm not just making it up. Your story is the leader of the company started in 2016. But I want to go all the way back. When did Peachtree, when were you founded? When did you first get involved in the company? How did your journey? The company was founded in 1980 by Wayne Morrison. Wayne's father was heavily involved with what used to be Rock City Box. And then Rock City formed with Tennessee Packaging and became what we know as Rock 10. And Wayne started his career working at Rock 10 and Norcross and was a 
general manager there at some point and eventually had his moment where he decided that things could be done different or better and started Peachtree Packaging. So a smaller, independent mindset, family mindset, small sheet plant. And he did that for four years and then Terry Roof found his way to Peachtree Packaging and became Wayne's business partner. So they really are the two that I like to consider the founding fathers of Peachtree Packaging. Were they friends? How did those two even? They were acquaintances and Terry had worked for J&J Mid-South, I think over in Augusta, and then eventually made his way into the Atlanta market looking for a new opportunity and the opportunity that Peachtree presented itself and Terry ran towards that. So they became business partners in 1984 and started to grow the company. It was still a small sheet plant. I showed up there in 1990 because I had met Terry working at the golf course down the street. How old were you? I was 16 years old, picking the range and washing golf carts. <laughs> and I always would find Mr. Roof when he'd show up to play golf because I knew he tipped well. And I'd clean his <laughs> clubs and clean his bag and I always made sure I got a little extra money for that day when I would meet Terry. Through that, I got to be friendly with him a little bit and he convinced me one day that I needed to quit working at the golf course and I needed to come work at his box company. Even at that age, 15, 16, at 16 years old. Years old. So I told him I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do or needed to do, but he told me that's the path I needed to follow and I'd make a lot more money and I needed to come talk to him. Were you just doing this as a summer job or were you after school? This was my senior year. After track practice every day, I would go work at the golf course and Terry said they ran a night shift at the box plant and I could work there the hours that I needed to. So anyways, we decided that we would try that and I went over there and started working from five o'clock till nine o'clock, Monday through Thursday. Holy catching boxes off the back of a 80-inch two-color rotary die cutter. When you took that job, were you just, was your mentality at the moment, you just wanted to follow this guy, you want to make a few extra bucks? Like, wanted or, to make more you... money. I think I made $4 an hour at the golf course, and <laughs> I think that Terry gave me a gracious pay raise to $6 an hour to come catch boxes off the back of the machine. You were killing it. Yeah, That's absolutely. It's a huge raise, huge raise but I had no idea what I was jumping into. It was just a new opportunity to make new money at 16 years old. If I could make $2 more an hour, work is work, what the heck. So I dove right in and quickly learned a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have known at 16 years old because the second shift crew, they're pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> savvy, uh, street smart bunch of guys working there until 2 a.m. every night. Yeah. So I learned a little bit, but that was just a stopgap for me. That was my senior year of high school. And then I was going to the Air Force after high school, before I started college. That was a plan. What compelled you to know that you were going into the Air Force? My dad was a captain in the Army, and it was something that we agreed upon. He was adamant that I would do something to serve the country. So we settled in that I would go to the Air Force and be in the reserves, take one year off in between high school and college. And so for six months, I wasn't deployed for boot camp, and I worked at Peachtree full-time at that point. I had now graduated high school and was waiting to go to the Air Force and worked at the box company full-time and then left and went to the Air Force in maybe June of whatever that was, 91. And then when I came back from the Air Force, I immediately started school at UGA. What'd you learn in the Air Force? I learned that I was well-prepared being raised by a captain in the Army. So <laughs> you better know how to dot your I's and cross your T's and you better be able to get up in the morning and be ready for a good day. And I was taught that from a very early age and I enjoyed the Air Force. It was just a, it cemented the lifestyle that I was taught as a kid when it's applied to others and they apply it to the real world, it's beneficial. 
got to be organized and you have to be on point and you have to be ready for the challenges of the next day ahead. Did that, did that upbringing around your dad and maybe your time in the Air Force as well, did that translate into you as an employee at Peachtree in those early days? I think so, yes. I was always pushed and challenged to work and I enjoyed that. I had a, I think a lawn mowing service when I was in eighth grade. So I had my own company in eighth grade when we were living in Texas. I figured out that I could do it a lot cheaper than those crews that would show up in their pickup trucks with the trailers and all that. I just had one mower and one skateboard and I would push it down the road and cut grass for half the price of them. So I had all the grass I could cut and then some. So then I ended up with three employees, I think, when we were all cutting grass in the summertime over there. And my dad would buy us the mowers and buy the gas and we got to pocket all the cash. So that was a good learning lesson on time and money management. And, and Where did that come from, though? Was that your dad? Your, your, was he pushing you to do your own thing, or was it just organically? I don't know. I've always had a, I've always had a passion to work. I've always had a weird drive to figure out how can I make the most out of the least. So if this is the time that I'm going to spend, what can I get in return? And that's always pushed me in my whole career. So that's why I took a sales job at Peachtree when I got out of college, because the two things that I were attracted to is there was no commission cap and there was no amount that you couldn't sell. Go work as hard as you want, go sell as much as you can, and you get a commission on everything that you sell. Between that bridge of pre-college and then immediately after college when you started to sell, what was the mix of business? How big was Peachtree? an interesting story in these sheet plants. Wayne's background and then Terry joining and now here you are a young man in there. In 91, the complexities are much different than they are today. Correct. By the time I got there after school, it was in 1996. And I believe Peachtree might have been a $14 million sheet plant. Thompson die cutters, slitters, a couple of McKinley rotary die cutters. We didn't have a flexo folder gluer. We had a greenwood press, we had two rotary die cutters, and we had a general gluer. So no, no design room, none of that stuff, a real small sheet plant. And that's the mix of business that I was challenged to go out in the marketplace and find and sell. They always used to tell me their motto was all orders are good orders, big, small, or in between. Keep the lights on. That's right. Was it the clamshell, Thompson clamshell die yeah, cutters? two of them. Whew. Yes. Those were impressive machines. It was yeah. basically a mouth that opened and closed at its own rate of speed because most of the times the controls would be... And the operator got the opportunity to stick his hand in correct. that mouth every time in between revolutions. Pull one sheet out that's Put been die cut in. and stick another sheet in. Probably the most dangerous machine <laughs> I've ever seen in my career. And the ones that got really good at it would pull one out and put one in all in the same motion. You Correct. could always tell who were the novice operators. They'd give one cycle to get it out, and then they'd wait a cycle, and then they'd put one in. We had a guy at Interpack that would left-hand grab the newly die-cut sheet and right-hand insert that's the correct. blank. And that's exactly what Chad's talking about, and this was this motion. All the while, a machine that was probably a couple tons of pressure would open and close on its own. Correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's Could a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful OSHA certified machine back Correct. in the day. But after college, did you, was there any thought of doing anything else or did you immediately run back? Terry was smart enough. He found me when I was a junior in college and set this whole plan in motion and put this whole idea in my mind. So any college graduate would run towards a first job, right? You're not out of school yet. You're looking for an opportunity. Oh, I've already got a, first, I got a job when I get out of school. So at that point, then I didn't really consider anything else. Just get out of school and go to work and see where it would go from there. Obviously, Terry had a certain 
charisma to him. He's convinced you to leave the golf course outside in the sunshine to go work in a box plant in the middle of the summer. Correct. You return full time before you go to the Air Force and Correct. then you come back after college. Correct. This guy obviously had something. He did. I was attracted to his work ethic and he was a tough, gruff, six foot five guy. He was a big gentleman, had a big personality and he could fill the room. But he always had a soft side to him, too, and he took after me like a kid. He really did. He took after me. He had two sons, and I was almost like his third yes. son. And what were your goals at the time? Was it just make as much money as just you possibly could? get out of school it? and earn some yeah. money so that I could start paying back my student loans and figure out how I could buy a car and just the simple things that you do when you're right out of school. Did you have any grand vision of running the company at that point of your career, or no. is it? No, I did not. Yeah. No, I think for the first couple of years, I wandered around there looking for sheet plant type orders in the local market. And if that's what I was tasked to do my entire time there, I don't know that I would have stayed there. I don't know that I would have been there for forever. That was something to do and it was fine and I could make a little money, but the company continued to grow all the while and they had vision. They always were looking for talent and they were always hiring. So anytime they could find somebody that was talented that maybe wanted a new opportunity or looking to leave somewhere else, they would scoop them up and bring them in there even if they didn't have the machinery or the vision of what they were gonna do with somebody if they thought they were talented, they would hire them. And we ended up hiring a designer and we hired, a, I guess, a, a division manager for what they proposed was going to be a display division that we were gonna start up out of the ground at Peachtree. So no business. No, They're just seeing we, opportunities. And we had a, what we had was a, a lot of customers at this time. We had been in business since 1980. It's now 1996, and we have attracted a lot of customers. We didn't have the capability maybe to fully maximize or leverage those already baked in customers. There was opportunities inside of these accounts that we weren't fully leveraging. And that's where when they hired Tim Willis and they hired Bob McCormick to come in and lead up the design and lead up the creative for the display division, I quickly started to gravitate to what they were doing and trying to learn from them. They were new people at the company and what did they know and what were they bringing? And I quickly started to run towards that and really shifted gears on what I was gonna do in my sales career there. And it really invigorated my passion for everything we do today. So it was what, more what colorful. What year was that? That was in probably by 98 or 99. So it was a couple years of just looking for sheet plant business. Tim and Bob maybe came right around the same time that I did. Took them a little while to find their way, and we started. A, we actually started up a design room and got some equipment in there. No CAD tables at that point, but at least we had some plotters and stuff where you could actually design some kind of five or ten or twelve part display, whatever yeah. it may be. And at that time, I'm guessing it's ambiguous with respect to your role in it. Here, these guys are here. Let's grow this design and graphics area. So you're seeing this. You've got that work ethic already programmed into you, and you see it as an opportunity to sell more. An opportunity to sell more big ticket items. Yes. Is what I looked at. So there it is again, the time management. And if I can sell more of these, then I can, sp I can get more of it. I have a finite amount of time in a year. But if I spend my time on this stuff, I think I can bring in a bigger loot. You talked, you talked at the beginning using the business, which obviously at this point has your fingerprints all over it, but you talked about service-based solutions-based approach. I have to think on those early days, you were developing and honing that selling style. Yes. How does that shift for you? Because you, you made an interesting comment about existing customers that you could leverage more of that side of it. Is this where you're crafting and honing this solutions-based, service-based approach? 
Yeah, I think it's been the same for a long time. So all the way back to that where we started, every time it was a lot, it was, a, it was an easier way to get an order or to gain a new account's trust. And that's what we have to do as a smaller independent company in the marketplace. We're not selling a lot of startups. We're having to go in somewhere and be disruptive to get them to tell somebody else no. They're already buying the stuff that we're trying to sell them. So if we're not innovative or we're not disruptive, if we don't have a different solution or a different way to serve up the same product, it's pretty easy for them to tell us no. What type of growth pattern were you on at this point, late 90s, as you started getting more and more into that facet? Of so that? as we started to get into that, it was slow to go. And I want to say it took a couple, two or three more years to, to develop. But I just happened upon a huge display at a grocery store. They were selling Walt Disney's children's books off this display. And it was me and my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife. We were in there shopping for a frozen pizza to bring home for dinner. And we bought a frozen pizza and a six pack of beer and a kid's book, a Winnie the Pooh Disney book. She said, what are you buying that for? And I said, Listen, look here, this account, they're down in Orlando, Florida. And look at this display. We can do that. And I was the only one that believed we could do that. So I brought that book back to work and I started making contact with that account down in Orlando. And I was able to get in there and give our presentation. And it took a lot, little while to gain their trust, maybe a year or so. I worked on that over and over. And then we finally got an opportunity to do some work for them. And I want to think that Peachtree had never done anything of that magnitude or that size. And the first order we received was to make 6,000 of these Winnie the Pooh end cap displays right. that go into Winn-Dixie's and Kroger's and Publix and all the supermarkets across the country. And so that one first order, all of a sudden you're talking about was a hundred and something dollar display even way back then that we had to manufacture, we had to fully assemble, we had to kit pack and do the fulfillment and the distribution for them. And that was something that we had ideas that we wanted to do, Yes, but we really didn't have all the things in place to execute that. So, yeah, well, it, was an op it was an opportunity. How about that? It was a great Spoken opportunity. Like a true salesman. It was yeah. a great Spoken opportunity. like a true salesman. How did everybody in the plant react to this? Uh, at first, at the beginning of that, the thought was that we can't do that. Right, we would be able to do that. Right. And Tim Willis, who believed in me a lot, he always said we could. And I believed him, and we did. And so when we brought that order in and we made that first 6,000 displays. It took the entire company's effort. It distracted the company in a lot of ways. And I had to stay heavily involved with that from cradle to grave. We didn't have all the handoff mechanisms. We didn't have the developed staff in all the different places that we needed to execute that to perfection. So therefore, I'm in doing all this extra work that the sales guy normally wouldn't do. But the silver lining in that is all the things that I learned by being involved on the initial design through the production to help handing it off to the fulfillment center to then handing it off to distribution, I had to handhold that all the way through. And it was like that for a long time until we could build the depth of talent around there to support that time. That so that's really interesting and such a valuable point. Front end salesmen selling these opportunities, as you put it, I more ops minded, look at it as an oh shit moment. But what's wonderful about that story is you just digging in. You've talked about the landscaping and the golf court. You're just a guy who's not afraid to work hard. I have to think people gravitate towards seeing you on the floor back in those early days trying to solve the riddle. I think a lot of the salesmen were confused as to what I was doing there. And I got asked a lot of times, why are you doing all that extra work? We want to ship this thing and get paid for it. 
got to get involved and make sure this happens the right way. So it was something that was new. It was something that was unique to the company's not so developed skill set at that time. But we had a where there's a will, there's a way mentality. Terry had that. Tim had that. Wayne had that. They were never they never said no. They always looked at these as opportunities to have the company evolve further than where it was when they started it. Mark, completion of that job, it, it delivers and all. Obviously, you're looking at it as a massive growth opportunity for you and the company, but Correct. did everybody else at that point upon completion believe the same or were they still skeptical? I think there was some skepticism. It was pretty tough on, a, on some of the operations in the manufacturing like said, environment. turned over your plant. Where they yeah, where they were under they were under not under staff, but they just didn't have the capability. So they they made it work, but it wasn't easy, that's for sure. And was it a moment was that your big moment where you said, "Oh, this is it. This is where we're going to go." Is in your mind were you thinking that this is Correct. made it? Yeah, I didn't think we had made it, yeah. but it was it immediately fueled us to where not only were we doing it for that account in Orlando, we started doing it for another customer in Jacksonville, Florida. We started doing it for a company in upstate New York, and we started doing it for a company in Scottsdale, Arizona. So quickly, we went from zero to 100 with all these huge opportunities, and that really started to put some stress on the company. But we ended up having to rent more space and get a bigger warehouse and get a bigger fulfillment center, and we ended up getting some more equipment around all this stuff. So it was super invigorating to me because the company supported it. Even though they didn't have all the capabilities at the time we landed all this stuff, Everybody was willing to grunt through it and get it done and, and do their best they could. And a lot of people working really hard to get it done. And then we were able to grow our capabilities and grow our team, and they just never gave up on it. That's that. great. So now, was, wait, at this time frame, if my math is right, this is now moving into 99, 2000? Is that we're about probably it? now into probably into the early 2000s, yeah. probably you know, 2002, 2003. And, and Wayne and Terry are still involved? Yeah, Wayne and Terry are still so involved. So these guys are supporting. Yeah. Are you finding other salespeople, the ones that you referenced with, what are you doing all this work for? Are they starting to see the fruits of this, yes. starting to move their focus into that space? Yeah, I started seeing more and more of, of the interest being peaked, and then other sales guys were bringing in opportunities at this point, too. So people were jumping on board and taking advantage of what we were learning and trying to apply that to their own bucket of business. And then we so we grew a division from zero to... 0% of the revenue of the company to probably 30% of the revenue of the company in a decade's time. And, and were they? So from the late 90s to the, then the late 2000s, we had created a 30% piece of the pie for that division for the company. Were, were Wayne and Terry consulting you as you guys started to expand on as far as equipment growing your space? No, we, we did most of this almost with very limited equipment still at this time. We really didn't have the equipment. We had one printing press. We bought a, a four-color Grant workhorse, and we put that in. When was Supercore in Atlanta in 96? We put it in right before Supercore in 96 because we got a, a real good deal. They needed a machine in that marketplace, and we ended up being the one that put the machine in so they could do show and tell and customer meet and greets out there at our plant for that machine. But we were doing all of this display work through litho printing, sourcing the litho printing from different vendors and then mounting it all by hand on a pot devon or <laughs> mounting it on a old Cratern and Smith laminator. It was kind of like semi-automatic laminator. Eventually we evolved and worked our way into getting an automaton and that was a huge step for Peachtree. But that was, that's all the equipment that we had. It was a lot of handwork, a lot of people doing a lot of hard work to get this stuff done. So we start getting towards end of the late 2000s, so 2010, 
2009. Yes. You've grown this division. Wayne's involved still. Terry's involved. Correct. You've now what? You're how many years at the company? So you got to think from 96 to 2006 or into the yeah. late 2000s. I've been there a decade now. Yeah, and so got an opportunity your... to invest in the company. Okay. That was the way they did that. They had. Did you go to them or did they come to you? They came to me. And there was a couple sales guys that were already shareholders there that had done a good job on the industrial box sales. And they were starting to sell some of this display stuff. And anybody that they considered to be a high value or a key employee, they tried to figure out a way where they could get them invested further and lock them up and get them to be a shareholder. And so I invested and bought some shares and we went along like that for a while. And I made some better, more, I guess, deeper relationships with some of the other shareholders and those two guys that are in sales are my business partners today. Interesting. It's interesting to me because you talk about being approached by owners to make an investment in the business. I think that's not something that you would ask the question, Joe, of did you approach them or they approach you and to hear your answer is just something you don't normally hear about in, in just business in general, let alone the box business. That's a very interesting approach to, obviously they thought and respected you, thought highly of you, and thought it would be a great idea to have you more than just an employee. That's yes. You used the term locked you up. Were you considering other avenues at that point? You'd been with Terry. It sounds like no. he's one of your big mentors. Like no, you. I, okay. I was so heavily invested yeah. in my own sweat equity into yeah, the yeah. whole thing and trying to always try to pave the path where we could do more business and bigger opportunities. I, I didn't even have time to look up and look out anywhere. <laughs> It was just grind it out there and do the best we could. And I really enjoyed it. All the people were great to work with. And it was big for them to have everybody that was pretty much in a key leadership spot there to have to have an investment in the company. What was your reaction when they came to you and offered you that opportunity? It was something that I was super excited about and I something bet. that I gravitated towards and felt like I was now being specially selected to join the club. Right now, I'm now I belong. Now That's awesome. I'm one of the club members. And so our production manager was invested and our operations manager, our display division manager, Wayne and Terry, our customer service manager. So everywhere and then some of the key sales guys, so everywhere where they thought they had a highly valuable leader, they really wanted them invested. Were you married in the at the time? So I got married in 2006. So yeah, I'd just gotten married at that point. My wife and I dated for six or seven years. So she was along for this ride with me. And uh, then we got married and we kept going. And I guess somewhere about 2010, Terry out of the blue decided he was gonna retire. And that was an earth, earthquake moment there for the company because he was such an impressionable leader for me and others around there. Wayne was still gonna stay and work, but Terry was gonna retire. How old was he? Early 60s, 60 years old probably. But at this point too, which I think plays into it, you're no longer just selling. You're doing a lot more in the organization. So I, there's probably a certain aspect where Terry's, oh, these guys, we brought them in, they're investors. These guys are taking this company in a direction we can trust. I think really what he, his motivation was that he didn't think that the company was gonna be able to afford for him and Wayne to retire at the same time. Oh, interesting. So he wanted to get in first place and he went ahead and cashed in his chips and retired. And our CFO at that time, Mike Camp, had the wherewithal and had the desire to take over that role that Terry was in. And so it was a natural progression. So one of the other more senior shareholders wanted to invest more and had the capability to do that. And so that's how they handed off the baton. 
Because in, in your description, there had been key employees who had invested all along. So obviously, right. the CFO had been invested yes, for a while. Correct. And, and thought it and had be been a with new them for, a, for almost the beginning. That's interesting. Yep. And so that kind of motivated myself. It got me really thinking about, well, maybe what's going to happen when Wayne retires and what's going to happen here at Peachtree? I'm so deep in at this point and I enjoy it, what I'm doing. I enjoy the people that I work with. I enjoy the culture of the company. Where does it go from here? So I really started to have a lot more in-depth thoughts about the future and what my future was there. I wasn't just so busy anymore working on growing my sales bucket. I was now thinking about where does this end ultimately? And I had at that point a pretty strong passion to try to make sure that we were able to stay there forever. I you wanted, think that was shared with the other shareholders, like not necessarily Wayne as founder, but as you see Terry's exit, as you said, you're, and you start examining this, are you having side discussions with some of these other investors in the group to say, hey, what do we do to map this out? Or is this kind of, you're still rolling this around in your own brain? Yeah, so it wasn't too far after I had these thoughts and ideas that I knew I was going to need help. And I had two pretty good peers in the sales side that were shareholders and Andy Moody and Ed Davis. And I approached them and said, there's an opportunity that I think in my mind we might could do something with. I want to talk to you two about it. And so we went to lunch one day and I laid it out for him. I said, this place is going to get sold eventually. I don't know who the buyer will be. But I don't think any one of us have the wherewithal or the capability to do it. But maybe as a power of three, maybe we have an opportunity in front of us. So they, they believed in that and they believed in me and us and the company. And so we all made a pact that we would put our heads down, keep working as hard as we could, buy as many shares as we could. As the shareholders are getting older, some other people were starting to retire. And they always offered these shares back up to the shareholder group. If you wanted to buy more, you could. And so the three of us made it. Eddie actually had more shares than Andy and I at the time. And he allowed us to catch up when we had one of these share sales. So then we became equal partners at that time, so to speak, equal shareholders at that time. And we continued to buy equally every time we got an opportunity. And I kept on Wayne for quite a long time. For five years, I probably was after him about what his exit strategy was, what's the plan. And he never had a plan. He would laugh it off and, yeah. and just keep on moving. And so I guess as we continue to grow and we now at this point got a little smarter about what our business could be, what the opportunities were in the marketplace, and we added a little bit of capability on the asset side, there was always op big opportunities now to add some better assets in the manufacturing plant. And so as that knowledge grew and those opportunities came available, I spearheaded that up and started to figure out what else we could buy and how much this stuff would cost and what it would look like and how it would fit in the plant. And I would propose this stuff to Wayne and the other shareholders. And my had high failure rate. I didn't get a whole lot of buy-in <laughs> to, to much of this, but that didn't, keep me, that didn't keep me away from continuing to present the opportunities. I was always trying to figure out a way that we could make the plant better, more efficient, and then go find more business in the marketplace with these different CapEx events that we could take advantage of. Were you still managing your sales bucket? At the same so time? I'm still doing my own thing in sales and I had convinced them to let me hire a kid that I thought was pretty talented who is now our number one salesman for me. And 
I was working with some of the other reps on what we did in the graphic space and what we did in the display space because I had so many opportunities and referrals, I couldn't run them all down. Mm -hmm. And we were missing those opportunities. So I presented that to both Wayne and Terry and said, look, we need to, I need to hire somebody and I need to get them in here and I need to teach them what I know and they need to go execute on these other referrals that I'm not paying attention to. That's bad for business. And they agreed and the other reps were doing their part and we were growing this company at a pretty, pretty high clip. You took two kind of two part question. One, I think there's, do you think there was ever any kind of a risk profile issue with Wayne as you're trying to bring these equipment opportunities together as an older shareholder? He probably doesn't want to put the debt on the books. Correct. And that then, was, that was really the, the breaking point, so to speak. It was the, it's what brought the conversations more closer to reality. And Wayne was very passionate about this company that he started in 1980. It was him. It was his life. The company was, is like a child of his. So it was very difficult to push him too hard on these conversations. But I always stayed after him just so he knew I was interested. Yeah. I don't know that he thought that we really had the wherewithal to actually be able to buy them out and take this thing on. But we put some conveyor systems in the plant and they let me do that. And we put some different load formers in the plant and they let me do that. So I'm looking at concrete drawings and electrical drawings and sorting all this out. All the while, I'm still just a sales guy. <laughs> but they're basically giving me enough rope to hang myself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you want to do that. And they, so we did the smaller CapEx events. But then when it came into the bigger assets, the machinery and whatnot, it was always a, a hard no. Yeah. But then ultimately, I think that's what moved Wayne to allow this whole baton passing to happen because we were after him to buy a real graphics printing rotary press to then further go into these display accounts where some of these display accounts, we could sell them the displays, but we couldn't sell them the bolt-on graphic packaging. We didn't have the capabilities and we couldn't do that. So I looked at it as another opportunity to take the bucket of business that we already have and leverage it further. And as we started to present some of these bigger CapEx events to Wayne, I think in his heart, he knew it was the right thing for the company, but it wasn't the right thing for him. I suspect that there's probably a certain, there's a certain dynamic of all of the shareholders that they had involved and given this opportunity to who are now, there's a fair amount of you in sales, your young people that are actively out looking for market opportunities and to, to his credit, I guess what I'm saying is it was just you as a minority shareholder trying to convince Wayne. It probably gets sold without you buying it. And I think your approach to, hey, we're better as a power of three yes. was probably the key to that. Is that. Would you say that's a fair statement? Absolutely. And the other, the outbound shareholders, when the whole transition went down, if it wasn't for Tim Willis, if it wasn't for Melvin McPherson, if it wasn't for Mike Camp, we would have never had the opportunity. We had built a great bond with them and we had worked tirelessly and they believed in us and they saw the opportunity as something that we had earned. That's they, neat. They wanted to see that happen. And so I think they really helped behind the scenes get Wayne to come to peace with this whole thing and maybe there is a way for it all to happen. I want to open that up a little bit. You said a couple times you were on Wayne. How was that working through when you're saying, hey, we need investment, we need to do this to grow, what are your plans? And if that's taking place over a kind of a three-year period. It never got testy, but I could tell that it was becoming more and more uncomfortable for Wayne to have all of these different opportunities presented to him and him have to shoot them down. So he wrestled with that. I knew he wrestled with that. It was tough for him. And then wrestling with the whole, how am I going to exit out of here? When does my passion quit burning? Because he was still highly passionate about the business the day we bought him. 
Mm. And Wayne stayed around and worked for us for a while until we really started to change what we did as a business. And at that point in your career, when we're changing so rapidly, it was hard for him to blend in or keep up with that. How many shareholders did you have to buy out in the process of the transaction? Uh, five. That's never easy no. either because no. you have five differing sets of expectations Correct. when Correct. you're buying a business. But I had Wayne and then the next three closest to Wayne, Mike Camp and Melvin and Tim, I had built such a great bond with them and had worked so hard around there doing all the things that I've talked about, the things that needed to be done that I didn't get a paycheck for. But it's experience and experience is education and education isn't free. And I just did all that because I had a burning passion to see Peachtree carry on and see Peachtree evolve and become bigger and better year after year. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Eddie and Andy? Is it Andy as well? Yes. The other two partners through those years where you were going to Wayne and asking and right. talking. Obviously, the three of you got to be united as one. We and are. How, we're how very, did that develop we're, over We're very years? close. We've worked together for 30 years. And it's amazing that we're that we're that I found those two guys there and they found me and we've been great friends for life our families are friends we do things outside of work we've done that our entire career there and they believed in me a lot really trusted me to be the driver of this initiative and the catalyst of this whole thing and if it wasn't for Eddie and Andy today I couldn't do all this on my own. It was no. same question he had about Wayne was there any tension ever during that process with those guys? Nope we were uh, fully supportive and they knew the timeline was out of our control We didn't even know if we would ever get a chance for it to happen. All we could do was present the desire and we wanted to present our case and we constantly did that. Just constantly stayed after Wayne to what he really wanted to do and how was he gonna exit the company or what was the ultimate plan. And I made sure he was very clear that we had a burning desire to grab the torch and carry it forward. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about the day the day where it's now yours. Your dream here is coming true. Well, how did that go down? What did Wayne do, and how did that all unfold? So it really came down to the, to probably the biggest capital expenditure that the company was ever going to take on, and we were right on the doorstep of trying to buy a press from Andre Gottfried, <laughs> and we were going to buy a Gottfried machine. And Wayne would hear me out, and we'd have pretty in depth meetings about what we were going to do with this machine. We had a, I probably carried a quote around for two years, mm. and we had meetings around how this was going to work and what it would cost and how, what the bank model was, how we would pay for it. And ultimately, I think that's what, what was the final straw that Wayne said, you guys just need to buy the business. We're not going to do that. And I know it's probably the right thing to do. And you need to buy the company. Fine. How do we do that? It's an interesting moment there that is so compelling to me. I think he recognized and saw the passion, how hard you guys were all working, the path of the organization to admit to you and probably to himself for the most part because of that dynamic of this business is like a child, but he comes and says it's the right thing to do for the business. He just knew it wasn't the right thing for him. That's correct. That's a pretty defining moment, I think. Yeah, and it was a very personal conversation. Yeah. It was pretty difficult. It was always, they put a gas pedal and a brake in every car and those conversations had to be handled that way. I could hit the gas for so much and then I had to hit the brake. You could only push it so far to where it would start to get disruptive. Yes. So I had to handle that with kid gloves the whole time because when it's a very difficult decision for Wayne. But when he was finally ready and he said, well, you guys need to buy the company. And I said, how do we do it? What's that look like to you? So you need to tell me what you want, how you want it to go down, what are your desires? And then I'll see if I can go about putting a final plan together. And so once we settled in on what he wanted and what the other shareholders wanted and how this was all going to go down, Andy and Eddie were sitting there with me at a table. And we're, well, I don't know. 
how are we going to do this? <laughs> so, thank goodness. I built some good relationships in college, and my college roommate went on to be a banker. So he was an international banker and worked for Goldman Sachs, worked for Deutsche Bank. And so I called Todd and said, hey, Todd, we're finally going to get an opportunity to buy this box company that I've been talking to you about for the last 10 years, and we need some money. <laughs> what do you need? And I said, I don't know. Let's get together. Let's have a meeting. So I laid it all out with him, and he said, well, that's easy. But that's all we need to do. He said, I'll buy in, and I'll be 25% partner, or I'll be equal partner with you and Eddie and see if these guys will take a, like an owner finance type buyout. We'll give them X amount down and we'll buy it out over the next 48 months. And let's put that on the table and see what happens. And then it pretty quickly all fell into place. To me, find interesting is that you asked him, how do you want this to go down? What do you need out of this? What are your expectations? Just because in previous podcasts, we've heard people say, if we were to do it again, we would have asked that question. BJ yeah. was the one that pops to my mind. Yeah, there's no there's no doubt that a, a kind of a, an internal inside baseball transaction is a lot easier than the external ones. And it's interesting, BJ's buying from family. And Chad, it's like family. Yeah. It's not, but it just really cuts to the chase. I think it's also, listen, it's extremely helpful when you have willing participants on the other side. As Chad said, the design guy, the older shareholders that had been around really knew and trusted Chad and and the other sales guys that were his partners. And that all of that kind of confluence of dynamics really helps make that easier. But that is a really insightful approach. What do I need to do to make this something, fit something you want? Like I said, he earned that and he deserved the opportunity to have a white canvas and paint on there what he thought was the way to, to, to part ways. That's great. And so that was, I don't think he would have had that opportunity if he would have sold outside to anybody else, but it was the opportunity that we could afford him. And then we needed to figure out how we were going to execute on that. And at the same time, you're buying a press. Is that correct? Did you? So we, we bought the company, I think it was on a Friday in October of 2016, and we bought the Gottford Press on Monday. I mean, if you're going, might well, as well go all the way. I knew we needed to stay true to our word. That was the whole catalyst that got this whole thing to go down. So yes. there was no backing out at this point, and I didn't want to get too smart to get scared. <laughs> so I was young, dumb, and fearless, and we just moved on it immediately, and we were off to the races. There's a good story behind that that maybe, I don't know if we need to put it on air, but we can talk about that later. But we bought the machine and never looked back. Inside of our factory, we had to do a bunch of demolition and we Let's had, hear what you're willing to share about that we had story. To, we, got, we, we got another 35 <laughs> minutes. What you're willing to share is it's completely up to you. That's, that's fine. So when we bought that press on Monday, I sent a purchase order over and sent the quote with it and signed it over there. It was easy peasy, moving on. And then I got a call from Chris Hoish maybe two months in the rears of that whole thing going down. He said, hey, did you buy a press from Andre? I said, I did. He said, did you send him any money? I said, no, I haven't sent any money. So I sent him a purchase order. I figured we'd pay for it down the road. I don't know. How's that all work? He said, oh, boy. He said, we got... <laughs> he said, no wonder Andre was saying all that stuff to me in German when I was on the phone with him. <laughs> so anyways, then I ran into our great dear friend, Eddie Gargiulo, yeah. at John Kelly's box plant. And John's been a great saint for me, too. He's helped me so much. Things that he's seen and done and just treated me like a kid and a son almost and been very helpful and supportive of what we're doing. And anyways, at, after meeting Eddie, I gave Eddie the same spiel. And he said, well, we can fix that. We can make that work. And so we worked with Eddie and we finally got Andre some money. And he was already making our press in good faith anyhow. And mm, nice. then the press delivers in late 17. And we started running the press in January of 18. So that's pretty quick from October of 16 to January of 18. 
you guys must have been so excited to see what that press was capable of doing. For sure, it was for sure. But the company wasn't ready for that press as much as I was. For the longest time, I carried boxes to and from work every day with different schematics and concrete schematics and electrical drawings. So I was the project engineer on this press that we bought and how we were going to demo the break room in the middle of the plant, rebuild new break room and bathroom facilities for the employees. And then we had to put in drain pits and we had to do all the things that we needed to do to bring in this press. And all the while, I'm the new president and CEO of the company swimming upstream like crazy. Not, there's no handbook that they gave me on the way out the door. I had a lot to learn there coming from an independent kind of self-employed sales guy. And now all of a sudden there's 150 people that kind of want to know what's going on every day. And With a family, if I'm not mistaken. I have two young kids at the time, for sure. Yeah, this is in 16. So How my, old were they? My kids were 10 and 8. Unreal. Yeah. The wheel does not stop. No. Just because you've got some projects in your No, business. I was still managing a huge bucket of business. I was now the president and CEO and the project manager on the, all the plant improvements and the press install. Did it affect you at all? No, it invigorated me. I think I just had the fact that we were able to pull all this together and be able to execute on this. It was just more fuel to the fire and it was just burning on both ends. Just a huge desire to, to see this through and execute on this buyout and this new machine and the evolution of what we were going to be able to do with the new equipment. No, it, it didn't affect me. Was there any moment of doubt after this was all going down and as you got, you just mentioned you got 150 employees? There were the only moments of doubt that I had were looking through all of those boxes of technical diagrams that I'm not an engineer by schooling, but I've got some good street smarts and I was trying to figure it all out. And I called a friend of mine who went to Georgia Tech and is He's an engineer and he's a lawyer. And I asked Matt, I said, Matt, do you have anybody that I can talk to that could come in here and help me with this project? And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I bought this machine out of Germany and I'm having to do construction work in the plant and I'm having to get more power pulled to the plant. And I'm having to get all this stuff done before the machine comes in. Then we have to install the machine, of course. And he told me, you need to call Brian Cantrell. So I called Brian Cantrell out of the blue and he's working over at a, another like CO2 manufacturing operation across town. And he's, a, he's an engineer by schooling, and he's a hands-on doing it all over there. He's doing what I was doing at Peachtree. And so I had lunch with him one day and talked to him about all this. And he said, well, I'll be glad to help you. And I said, well, I really want to hire you is what I want to do. And he said, oh, no. He said, I'm more than happy where I am. Got a great job over here. And anyways, I probably took him to the same Mexican place 10 times before I finally convinced him. <laughs> you just and wore him down. I after just 10, kept working on him. 10 rounds of tacos did yeah. the trick. <laughs> I bought him a lot of free tacos. <laughs> then I got Brian to come join the team, and I handed all those boxes over to Brian day one. And I said, look, what I really want you to do is go home for a couple weeks. I don't even want you here. I don't want you distracted at all. I said, I need you to dig into all of this. And when you fully understand it or you have questions, you can just call me, but you'll be way better off, undistracted, dig through all this stuff, let me know what you don't know or what you need answers on. So I gave all that to him and sent him home on a Friday, and he came back to work on Monday. And I was like, I thought you were going to work at home. You need to go through all those boxes. He said, I already did all that. Jeez. So you got any questions? No, nah, none. We're good. And so we went through the install with Brian, and Brian was my lead engineer at that time, and I've now moved him to, he's the director of all manufacturing at Peachtree. So he's quickly scaled up with us, and he's done a brilliant job. What I find really fascinating about this process from October of 2016 through these first couple of years is that it doesn't seem like there was a moment where you just sat back and patted yourself on the back and said, I've made it. 
No, like we, you had a billion thoughts going through your right, mind about we, what's right. next. Well, and what it, was, we, it was a 10-year playbook where I had written all this down. I was just ready to execute. I had all these plans. I had all these ideas. Now we needed to put them in motion. So I've been working on this in the background for 10 years where the company could go, what I wanted to do with it, if we were ever gonna get an opportunity. I didn't wait until I bought it to develop the playbook. Now we just needed to execute the playbook. So we had a, we, it's almost like an NFL team scripts the plays when they come out there for the first series or two. Well, we had a whole script to follow. It was just a matter of executing and the faster we could execute, then the quicker we could evolve and get on with kind of our stamp on the company and take it to the next decade or two. I think there's something else that there's like an underpinning in listening to your story is that you're not running this business saying, I have all the answers. You're seeking out, whether it's Chris Hoish or Brian Cantrell or your banker, college friend. And it's just, it's so refreshing. Let me find people who are experts in their own areas, convince them to help us through this process so we can be better for it instead of you saying, I'll carry these boxes around and figure it all out. It's a pretty compelling piece to this story here is finding people who can help you cut the learning curve and get there a little quicker and help the organization be successful. It's not how can Chad help Chad, it's how can I find resources to help this business. That's a pretty neat piece to this. I think when, right when we took over the company, I talked to the whole group and I've always just, I've really always pushed, show up with a good attitude and have a desire to learn and we'll be good for forever. Who are, obviously Terry, but who are some of your mentors? Just kind of look at your work ethic, this kind of heads down any doubt no who's helped craft you professionally personally over your career first and foremost my parents both my mother and my father have a huge impression on me for sure growing up and then uh, terry made a big impact on me of course when he convinced me to come there and he was hard on me but like i said the coach always coaches the ones that have the ability harder than the ones that don't the coach isn't yelling at you after practice (laughs) Probably not very important to the team. And then when they brought Tim Willis there, who was our display division manager, he was a huge mentor for me. And he taught me a lot of what he knew and brought to our company because I think I was willing to sit down and listen and learn. Mm -hmm. And he made a huge impact on me. And I've always carried that with me that we can't ever operate like we know it all. If we ever get to that point that we're the smartest guy in the room, it's probably time for us to exit. I've always had a passion to learn and I really get pretty bored if we're not learning. Yeah. If we're not able to learn and evolve, that's the whole point of the whole thing, is to continue to learn and continue to evolve and continue to grow. I see, it's funny, talk about when you're 16, I see Terry effectively looking at you saying, you're coming to work for me. With just your description, 6'5", big personality, right. gruff, just, you're coming here, right. you're gonna sell here. That's oh, okay, right. how do you try to pass on as you develop talent? You talked about the young person that you brought into the business to you said, I, I taught them the business so they could take these leads, these cold opportunities, grow this business. How do you go about in your own unique way of kind of paying it forward? I've never been scared of hard work and I've never been scared of putting in the time. And I think I lead through example. I'm there all the time still. I enjoy being there. And I just try to encourage everyone that's there to always have an open mind, always be willing to learn and evolve. If you don't, you're going to miss opportunities mm. and you're going to, you're going to miss a lot of the joy of what this is and, and what we call work, right? Learning is education, it's evolution. And 
that's always been my passion and I try to bring that to the company every day. And I still have the same mentality that the company did before. If somebody's talented and we can hire them, we need to hire them even if we don't have a spot at the moment. The more talent we can have, the better off we are. Never operate like you know it all and always be willing to surround yourself with people that have more experience. If they're willing to help you, you need to surround yourself with them. As you look over the course of your career, sweeping floors, catching boxes, into sales, and obviously then into the ownership role, is there anything that you look back upon and say, man, I wish I would have done this differently or done this sooner? I think that the closest example of that was when we bought that Gotford Press. Like I told you, I was ready to buy that press, but I don't know that the company was ready to buy mm. that press. So I had a, a pretty easy bank model on how we would pay for that press. And we had we shut down four machines to bring in one, and that machine was that much more efficient, and it was no problem. But I knew all that, so I had a plan, and I knew how to pay for it. But did we really know how to sell to it? Did we really understand as an organization what this machine could do and how we could help the marketplace and help our current customers and show value off of this machine. And so I learned a lot through that process and it's made me a better president for sure. And not just because you have passion for it doesn't mean everybody else is gonna have passion for it and maybe they're not as quick to learn or maybe you've been studying this for 10 years, Chad, and these other guys have been studying it for 10 minutes. No wonder they don't know all the buttons to push or the plays to call to put this press to best use or best practice in the marketplace. So we, we learned a lot from that. How do you, you, so you have your partners and you become, you buy this business, become president and CEO. What is your relationship like? How do you guys interact and work together effectively, even though you have to ultimately make these decisions in the business? Is it a You've known each other 30 plus years, and I get that part of it, but there, not every decision is that easy where everyone's completely 100% on board and they're like, yeah, Chad, just do it. Un- unless their attitude is to stay out of your way and they right. stick to what they're good at and you're just the guy to run this business. How does that relationship get managed? That relationship has managed itself so far. Andy and Eddie both do a great job of wanting to learn and wanting to evolve as well. If they didn't have that desire, we probably would would have a different relationship or a different partnership structure or something, but they're the two guys that I trust to take our knowledge to the marketplace. They are our sales leadership. They've done it their whole career. They're great at it, and they have to then tutor and mentor the rest of the sales staff to make sure that as we continue to evolve and add complex manufacturing assets that they know what these things can do and they know who would find value in what we're adding. Mm. So Andy and Eddie have never ran away from that. They run towards it. And that's why I think we have a great partnership. What's, uh, what does the future look like? Is this opportunity that got presented to you gentlemen, is this something is a pay forward for Peachtree? Is it not even on the table? Is it just, hey, head down and let's continue to grow and, and expand our offering to the customer? What, where, what do you see as the direction of the company going forward as its leader? So the company is continuing to learn and continuing to evolve and we're continuing to spend capital to to add future assets for what we want to do and increase our capabilities. We're about to sign up six more internal shareholders. So we're going to add our first group of shareholders to our now new ownership group. So we're just stepping and repeating the success that that we saw when we were just the workers there and then became the shareholders there. And now we're doing the same thing with the staff that we've put in place. That's really neat. So the big ball just keeps rolling and uh, it's great. I can reflect on that a little bit now and I can look at it a little bit different. I'm not 
100% fully involved in everything that we do anymore. I still make all the critical decisions and I don't sell as much anymore. I have different, I've evolved and have different responsibilities for the company. So I guess my viewpoint continues to get higher and higher so I can look at the whole thing, which is nice. I suspect that I suspect that somewhere in that company is a young Chad that's going to be pushing him on a new asset here in about, if it's a five-year run, like he was maybe 10 years, he was pushing Wayne. That's right. And that's what we, that's what we hope for. That's, that's what wonderful. we encourage him to do every day. That's, that's wonderful. That's an awesome to point push, of view. push the company forward to be helpful in the marketplace and help as many people as we can. Let's yeah. make sure we stay focused on our service, stay focused on our solutions so that we're bringing value to the marketplace. We're here at Corrugated Week and with AICC, and I heard you mention Eddie Garciulo earlier and how much he's meant to you. In general, what, how much do you lean on people like Eddie through AICC and these people that you've met yes, through the years here? A bunch. So I don't think I attended any AICC function until right after we bought the company, and I've been present as many times as I can be, and it's been quite a few. I found a lot of value in the organization. We've connected with Eddie Gargiulo. Of course, I knew Chris Horsch already, but Chris has introduced me to quite a few people. We use Mackie Davis as a consultant as well, and he, ran, he was in with John Madeira with California Box forever. And he's retired, but not really wanting to be retired. And he's a great mentor to us and our organization and works with all of our people in a consulting role and helps us with business analytics and whatnot. And I've made a lot of good relationships through the AICC. I've, learned a lot and I really enjoy it. Just sitting here today is, yeah. you know, yeah. enjoy it. We really thank, thank you for joining us today. I think it's so interesting to me that your story that resonates is just these changing risk profiles in business ownership and the, the young Wayne who starts a business and takes a flyer and doesn't know half of what he doesn't know evolves into I'm not ready to make that investment, but it's right for the business. And a similar story out of Chad, it was the right purchase. We just didn't know how we were going to sell it to the customer base yet. And now it's changed his perspective with his experience and this regeneration in your organization of new shareholders. It's a really exciting story in what Peachtree has evolved and become. super unique, too, for me. We've talked to so many people who know second or third generation business and they're passing it along to family or buying out family and for somebody that started on the floor as a non-family member literally doing probably the dirtiest job in the plant at the time to progress and continue to grow within the company and then ultimately become owner is incredibly impressive very much so thanks for joining us Thanks for having me. Breaking Down Boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.